Hello and welcome to the Rugby Post, the podcast that gives you a fan's perspective. I am your host, Josh Matthews, and I'm joined by my good friend, Mike Petretta. How are you today, Mike? Yeah, good, mate. How are you doing? You well? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Uh, I'm just about recovered from watching the Super Bowl. Obviously, Tom Brady now, the by far and away, the most successful American footballer that's ever lived. He's got more Super Bowl rings than any other team. Uh, so that just shows the dominance of the man. Um, it was really, really good to stay up and watch. Have you been up so much? Um, not really watching, obviously, the Six Nations. We wouldn't be on this podcast otherwise. Um, other than that, you know, just just sort of trying to keep up to date with all uh, the ins and outs of what's happened this week. There's some really interesting stuff for us to talk about. Yep, first week in the books. Uh, interesting weekend. Lots to talk about, um, particularly from, I think, an England perspective. I've got a lot I'd like to say on that. <clears throat> but before we get started, there was some breaking news today that the Premiership have decided that they're going to scrap promotion and relegation for this season and haven't given any indication as to whether this will um, stay in place for the seasons that are coming up. What is your initial reaction to that news? I think they're probably going to use this season as a bit of a case study. I get uh, that they you know, have to be non-committant because we don't know what the future holds, but in the same vein, they could quite comfortably have said, based on you know the current sort of pandemic, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit this at the end of the season. But they chose not to do that. So uh, from a personal perspective, I think that th- this could very much be sort of a case study towards ring fencing and you know how that would look for Premiership. So I can totally understand why they've chosen to scrap promotion and relegation this season for obvious reasons. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. I think that moving forward, if they're going to continue to do it for seasons that are to come, it could have a positive or a negative impact on the game. I don't think it's a clear cut. I think we've seen that other competitions, the Pro 14 and Super 40, uh, Super Rugby, I should say, it's not been Super 14 for a long time. Uh, Super Rugby uh, have been ring-fenced for a long, long time uh, and they still are able to produce a good level of talent. So we'll see. And on that, next week, Obviously, there's a rest week in the Six Nations, so there's probably not as much for us to preview. There'll be stuff for us to talk about in review of this weekend, which we'll bring you probably early next week. But we're going to do a deep dive. We've got a panel that we've put together that we'd like to talk about this idea of scrapping promotion and relegation full stop in Premiership Rugby in England. Um, so I think that'll be a really, really interesting discussion. We've got four or five of our friends who are all big rugby fans who are prepared to come on and have a bit of a chat with us and we'll get some of their views. Um, so I'm really, really looking forward to that. It'll be a good good discussion. They're all really good lads for the most part. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear everyone's thoughts. I think it's a mixed bag when it comes to, to, to that topic. And yeah, tune in next week. It'd be interesting. And with that, we should probably move into talking about the Six Nations from last weekend. So week yeah. one, 2021. Actually, I will just apologise quickly because last week I stayed that uh, Ireland were playing Wales in Dublin. I got that wrong. They actually played in Cardiff. So obviously we want to try and keep our information as accurate as possible on this show um, and obviously not deliberate, not to deliberately deceive anyone. Uh, I got that wrong. That game was in Cardiff. They are playing in Dublin this weekend though against France. I can confirm that. I've double-checked that as well. Uh, don't want to get that one wrong again. Didn't even so, realise until you said. <laughs> no, no, no. So last week I sat here very confidently and went, uh, yes, and uh, Ireland are playing Wales in Dublin. Um, and yeah, got that completely wrong. So I apologise for that. Yeah. Right. So France versus Italy. Uh, I think it's fair to say France were absolutely brilliant, weren't they? Fantastic. I think we sort of mentioned it was going to be a, a long day at the office for Italy. And it definitely was. Again, some standout players. We know you know, what France can do. And I know, obviously, we're going to touch on a couple of those players now, but as a complete outfit, we can see sort of how dangerous they are with their first team. And I definitely think that was their first team. I think what's really interesting as well, when you watch France at the moment, they look like a team that are just absolutely having a blast playing rugby. They're so, they look so excited and so happy to be there. And the way they play the game, they're playing with this fresh, new sort of outlook on the game. And, and again, well, I say fresh and new, other teams have done it previously, but I mean, in terms of the game is, is quite cyclical. You know, we go through defensive cycles, we go through attacking cycles, and we've been through, I think, over sort of recent years, it's been the game's gone quite defensive and Eddie Jones has talked about that quite a lot. And we'll, we'll come on to talk about that in a little bit. But France are now sort of moving it, are trying to move it back to a much more attacking style. And it's really, really exciting to watch. They scored 50 points, you know, Italy as well, to their credit, I thought, started the game strong, 
they made the first, I think they made the first line break through Brex. I thought he had a, a, a good game for Italy. But unfortunately, France were just way better. Yeah, brilliant. And I think with with, with the territory of, of France, I think let's talk about sort of how they approached that game. And I think there was no point within uh, that, that match where they didn't look like a complete sort of focus and professional outfit. And we were speaking about it last week. They took that game incredibly seriously. And it was really refreshing to see that because I think maybe some lacklustre sort of performances in the past definitely come from some complacency, maybe some sort of some ill discipline uh, off the field. But I think it, they definitely sort of pushed that side and came out looking amazing. And a lot of that has got to be down to the Sean Edwards effect. You know, he's come in and he's really professionalised this team. You know, they're not this ill-disciplined outfit that they have been over recent years. You know, we talked last week about the, the cliches of French rugby. They're not that cliché team anymore. They look like a complete outfit. Um, they're an absolute joy to watch, as we've just said. And I, I'd like to put it to you, Antoine Dupont, he's the best player in the world, isn't he? Hands down. Hands down, best player in the world. He was doing some magic. And we use magic, um, and, and we're not using that term loosely. He is a little magician in midfield. And, you know, some even some of the offloads and, you know, some of his support lines that, that he was running were so sneaky. You know, he's, he's never sort of full blast. He knows when to, to jog for the, for, the, for the support line and then when to sprint. He knows exactly what he's doing. And, yeah... He's, he's just such an exciting player to watch and hopefully there's a few more players that are starting to sort of form the same mould and, and are looking to sort of play the front up rugby and um, hopefully they get an opportunity, you know, at some point, Harry Randall being one. Do you know what, as well, I think having the audacity to attempt that over-the-shoulder offload for, I think, was it Fiku or Vincent? It was one of the centres, I think, to score under the sticks like that. There's not even, there's not many players in the world that would even have attempted that. But this guy is playing with so much confidence. Not only in the middle to that try did he take a catch one-handed in mid-air, juggle with it and, and take it. He then had the audacity to pop the ball over his shoulder pretty much off the floor to allow France to score under the sticks. That is a guy playing with supreme confidence. And for me, for my money, you know, I talked about how much I admire the guy. I think he's playing rugby on a different planet at the moment. And I thought he was absolutely fantastic last week. Everything goes through him, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, did you see what Aaron Smith said in the, I did. the social media? That is a compliment coming from, from a player of his calibre. And, you know, he's definitely setting the scene to become, you know, one of the all-time greats. I think it's going to be interesting to see sort of how his career progresses, you know, knocking on wood, he stays fit and, you know, focused on on, on, on the objective at hand because he definitely, definitely could be an absolute world beater and remain a world beater. He's so young. Yeah, I mean, Aaron Smith is one of the greatest scrum halves that's ever lived. So to have that sort of endorsement, that says a lot, I think. Yeah, uh, this guy... Is, is on the, on the way to, to some magical things in the game. Do you think that France have a good chance of winning the Grand Slam? I think it's going to be difficult, based off last week, to say that. I think there's sort of two clear contenders if we're basing our opinions purely on last week. And one is obviously going to be Scotland. Uh, we'll go on to that in a little bit more detail. And France are definitely another. I think it's going to be really interesting to see sort of if they have any adaptation to their games based on you know, who they're playing or, you know, come sort of the latter stages of the tournament, are they going to get found out a little bit? They definitely could, but obviously if I were to put my sort of name on it, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to be an incredibly difficult game against Scotland if we're basing the two performances. Yeah, I think if we're looking, you know, we're talking about purely off week one of the Six Nations, but if you look at the tournament now moving forward, that has got to be the game that's earmarked as potential game of the tournament. It's in Paris, which could have a big, big effect on the outcome of that game. You know, the French are very, very good at home. So we'll see. Uh, really, really excited for that game. Uh, but I think it's probably worth having just a, another quick chat about Italy. Really, really disappointing for them, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think there was um, a game plan in play. Um, I'm not sure sort of how well it was executed. But there was... Um, so, some interesting aspects and some interesting players that came out of that game and I think particularly how they, they looked to try and ship the ball to the wingers as quickly as possible and I think uh, I, I highlighted sort of briefly that 
um, Ignacio Brex uh, last week. Obviously, you've already mentioned to me, and I'll, I'll let you sort of explain that in just a second, your thoughts on him, but that he, he definitely feels as though the, the missing sort of ingredient to, to what Italy have been um, lacking in terms of how aggressive he is at running those lines into contact. And it's a difficult one because obviously if you look at that team, Outside of Sporandio, who I believe he had eight caps, the remaining players in that starting 15 had 14 caps. So we're talking a team that was fielded with 24 caps total, which is a lot of a lot less than you know some of the players that were playing against them. I think Fiku was on 33 caps alone. So hopefully they take something from it, like they learn, they evolve, they adapt. And there's an interesting point that was raised um, from 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 someone who um, makes videos on these on, on, on YouTube, and I think half of it is a communication issue. But they were saying it's a communication issue due to sort of the lack of experience. But it could actually just be a linguistic communication issue because there's so many non-Italian speakers in that. It's quite easy to lose stuff in translation. Um, so hopefully they get a little bit more time to gel and you know see what they can do um that's that's the negative side but if we look sort of where the tries came from it's interesting because i watched the the franco smith interview after the game and he highlighted that they came from one from open play two from turnovers and two from kick chasers uh, obviously the turnovers resulted in kick chasers anyway so we're looking at that and it's four tries from kick chasers and it just goes to show like the italian defense when it's structured, looks really good. But as soon as they get countered or if it's sort of disorganised, that lack of communication is, is, is throwing them sort of left, right and centre. Um, so really interesting to see sort of how how, how they develop from, from this game and what they take from it. Yeah, and what I don't want this podcast to be coming to us every week sort of speculating over the future of Italy. I don't think that's helpful at all. I think, you know, we'll do a review at the end of the tournament and I think we can discuss more than what we think the future for Italy is in terms of the tournament moving forward but I don't think it's helpful for us to speculate on it on a week by week basis I actually think that Italy showed a lot of attacking intent I was really impressed particularly early on in the game with them moving the ball like I say it was Ignacio Brex uh, the name that you mentioned there I, I very very much rated the way he played early in the game but they've got to cut the mistakes out, Italy. This is the big, big problem that they have. They've got to cut out the mistakes. And also, they've got to find a way of competing better at the set piece. The scrum and line-out just isn't good enough at the moment. But a lot of that does come, I understand, with lack of experience in that you look at that team and the stat I heard was that the entire 15, starting 15 for Italy last week had less caps put together than Sergio Parise. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd probably hazard a guess the entire team starting 15 plus the replacements probably had less caps than, caps than Sergio Parise. I think it's, it's you're, you're right, there's definite sort of issues in terms of uh, set piece and, you know, definitely sort of the, the line outs need work. And I think we're, we're missing one or two sort of key jumpers at line out Stein and, and, and Pelledri being sort of the two that I'm, I'm thinking of uh, but we need to adapt to that because you know if you don't you're always going to be in a position where you know you're struggling that being said there was some mistakes unforced mistakes that if they were um, reacted on or if, if they did go to hand could have been sensational Stephen Barney was playing really really well but then obviously there was the odd sort of nervous mistake and you know, there's the odd decision that, you know, with experience, they probably wouldn't 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 do again. So, like I said, it'd be interesting to see sort of how they learn from this and just take last week as for what it was. You know, they got a hiding. They need to sort of evolve from this and take what they can from the game because they have they could be sort of at this transient position where if they don't react positively, they've got their heads down and it's going to be um, it's going to be a long tournament, let alone a long day tomorrow. Yeah, so are you expecting then when Pelledri is fit again, and we hope that soon, are you expecting him to come back in and play number eight? Hands down. Although <clears throat> that, that Lamaro, considering he has only played, I want to say four games and one being international at, at number eight, has adapted incredibly well. At test level, he played pretty well considering I think that was his first international well it definitely was his first 
international test at eight and he's normally a six. So he did he did really well there. And I think Jake is sort of similar sort of build and similar sort of mould to him, whereby it doesn't really matter where you put him in in the back row. Um, he, he could play anywhere, but he's an absolute gem. I really, really rate that Lamar. And I think he, given time, he, he could be a fantastic player. Yeah, so at the fear of, uh, sort of contradicting myself later on, I think at the moment Italy have got to, or Franco Smith has got to decide what he thinks his best 15 is and he has to stick with that at the moment and he's got to back himself and pick these guys that he thinks are going to be sort of mainstays in that team. And I think, you know, if you can build a team around Pelledri at eight, Varney at nine and Garbisi at 10, you've got a good, you know, their key positions on the pitch are eight, nine and 10. And I think if you can if you can build a team around those three guys, then moving forward, they, they do have a potential framework for getting better. You know, we've picked out a couple of other players in there. Um, I'm going to mention Brex again. That's probably the third or fourth time we mentioned him, but I, I can't speak highly enough of him. Minotzi, when he comes back in eventually, he's another very good player. So we'll see. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen in the rest of the tournament for them. I think they're probably going to struggle. Yeah, it's nice to see Maury back in. Uh, he's someone that I marked last week. And I think, you know, based on his, his, his physical stats and his physical attributes and his 100-metre record, if he manages to translate that, you know, on the field, he could be so dangerous ball in hand. But it's also nice to see Tommy Allen back in, back in the squad. And I'm quite excited because at the end of the Autumn Nations Cup, Italy tried to do something fairly innovative where they had three playmakers on, on the pitch. And I wonder if we're going to see that again. It'd be interesting to see sort of who uh, Tommy Allen is going to be a replacement of. He could very much be sort of a, a like-for-like replacement with Paolo Garbisi. I'd be more interested to see sort of how he plays at 12 for Carlo Cano. That, that for me, could be quite an interesting sort of topic for how Italy managed to get ball to the wingers because clearly when we get to the wing we have capable wingers that you know Sperandio last week against France proved it I think he had um, a couple touches on the ball on the wing and he scored from the second touch having a 50% strike rate on the amount of touches that you have on the ball which just sort of goes to show the quality that they have um, out wide yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned tomorrow's game because I think that probably leads us in quite nicely to talking about the England-Scotland game where do we begin? Obviously, I know you have a, a lot to say from a, from an England fan perspective, so I'm not going to focus on England too much. What I will focus on is Scotland. And I think there's definitely something that we can talk about in terms of how they chose to play the game. They spread the ball really well. They kicked um, meticulously and, and with a precision that I don't think I've seen Scotland execute in a, in, a, in a long, long time, if ever. Scotland played well. I think they played to what they perceived England's weaknesses. And um, yeah, there's there's some fantastic plays out of that. And I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Redpath. Obviously, we mentioned him last week and how good was he? Um, he was yeah, he contender. Really well, didn't he? yeah, contender for Man of the Match. He, he was brilliant. Yeah, he was brilliant. Do you, th- do you think he's a player that England are going to miss losing in the long run? Do you think it's, it's a sore point of contention for Eddie that he, uh, he, he had the opportunity to cap him and he didn't? Possibly. I'm not sure at the moment. I think it's too early to tell. He's had one very good game for Scotland against England. So we'll see moving forward. I think, you know, I've heard people say that he played for England all the way up through the age groups. And it feels, you know, a little bit, don't want to say stab in the back because that's probably not fair, but it feels a little bit disloyal for him to then go and play for Scotland. So I guess we'll see. Eddie might look back on this in a couple of years' time and think, crikey, why didn't I cap him sooner? But we could say that about quite a few of the the players that have been included in the squad but not been captured. But for Scotland, do you know what? Before I go in on England, I just want to say that I think Scotland were really, really good. They absolutely deserved to win the game. And and anything that I say now about how poor England were takes nothing away from Scotland at all. And I want to make that quite clear to any Scottish fans listening. If anything that I say about England from this point, talking about this game takes nothing away from Scotland. What I would like to have seen from Scotland is a bit more of a killer instinct. And I think we talked about this just before we came on air because we had a quick chat about what we were going to talk about on the show. I would like a bit more killer instinct from Scotland. You know, they really should have put England to the sword, I think, last week. The, the England were there for the taking. England were there for a 15, 20-point loss, I think. And Scotland didn't do that. Do you think even when England play particularly poorly from your perception, they're still a team that's hard to break down 
England are England, aren't they? They're always going to be tough to break down at Twickenham. I accept that. But I think, like I say, it, they were there for the taking last week. They were, they were that poor. Yeah, so, so I think the question that I'd like to ask you is, where do you think England lacked last week and where do you think the areas of improvement are for this week and, and how, how, how do England evolve uh, from, from obviously lessons learned last week? I think a lot of it for England is around the style of play. So I don't think necessarily that it's, you know, I would like to see a change in personnel. I think that it's been, it's long overdue to a change in personnel in that team. But I think that until they stop this ridiculous kicking game that Eddie wants to employ, they're not going to go anywhere. We've gone backwards since the World Cup. We absolutely have. We had that game against New Zealand where probably for me, the best performance I've ever seen from an England team. And I, I think there's a lot of England fans out there who would, who would agree with that. We absolutely put New Zealand to the sword. But I don't think anybody, any England fan can disagree with me when I say that we've, in terms of playing style and in terms of the, how, how we're playing, we've gone backwards since the World Cup. Do you think then you have this unfair perception based on admittedly probably one of the best performances I've ever seen from England as well um, from the World Cup? And obviously now that you hold England to that standard, everything from that point has been a disappointment. I think that's a fair question, but I think that in the four years up to that 2019 World Cup, I think England have played some really good rugby. So I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that we hold England to that standard. I don't think that any team can replicate that standard on a week-by-week basis. Um, Well, possibly the Kiwis could replicate that on a week-by-week basis, but the Kiwis are a pretty special side. Um, But, you know, from an England perspective, I don't think that necessarily England fans are holding them to that standard, but I think they're holding them to a, a better standard than, than they're playing at the moment. Yeah, so I suppose the next question I'm going to ask you is, if we look at France, I, th- I believe it's France 2019, where England absolutely dismantled them with what is essentially the kicking game that they've employed um, since then. Do you think it's that been there, done that, everyone sort of understands how to defend that? Or for the most part, most people understand how to defend that. And, you know, it, they're, just, they're just flogging a dead horse. They're just constantly trying to sort of find this way of playing and, 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 and haven't evolved from that particular sort of game, game plan because it worked so well in the past. Honestly, I think Wales worked England out in 2019. When we went to Cardiff, that was the game where England got found out and they lost that Six Nations. They should have won the Grand Slam that year. And they lost that Six Nations because Wales worked out how to play against England. If you don't make mistakes, if you're solid, and actually if you run the ball back at them with players that can hurt you, like Liam Williams, like Stuart Hogg, you can cause England problems. And if you kick well out of hand and you put England back in the corners and make them play out or kick out however they want to do it and you run the ball back at them, you are going to cause England problems. And we saw that last week. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in, Scotland's kicking game was sensational. And I think the difference between the two sides was the fact that Scotland didn't need to kick the ball as much as England. The kicking was so more, so much more accurate and the, the kick chase was so much better that they didn't need to kick the, the ball more. Because an interesting stat that came out of last week is traditionally, or certainly over the past sort of few seasons at least, the team that kicks the most is typically the team that wins. And that wasn't the case last week. Well, interestingly enough, I think, you know, I don't have a problem with England kicking the ball. What I have a problem with is the aimless kicking. And that's what we seem to be doing at the moment. We seem to move the ball two or three phases, left to right. And if it doesn't go anywhere, we just lump it in the air and hope that the opposition are going to make a mistake. And it's like I said a couple of minutes ago, when you've got players like Stuart Hogg and Liam Williams that can hurt you, they're going to do that. And if we keep kicking to them and they keep catching the ball, we've got to develop a way of playing a, a different style so that we can we can hurt teams. Because at the moment, you watch the way we're playing, it's just not good enough, is it? I mean, let's be honest, as an England fan, it's not good enough. You know, for the first time, right, I sat there and I've watched, you know, most England games with my dad and my brother for the last 20 years, you know, when I've been at home. Obviously, I spent a few years lived away, but for the most part, when I've been living in Leeds, which is most of my life, I've watched most England games with my dad and my brother. And we've sat there. We sat there during the Autumn Nations Cup final. We sat there last week and we were sat, sat saying, I don't want to watch this anymore. It's that poor. You know, I want to watch rugby to be entertained. I don't want to watch that. 
Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I think there's um, a few, certainly a few coaches, and I think Eddie is certainly one of them who said, you know, if, if you don't like the way we play, go watch rugby league. Um, if you want some, if you want more of an attacking game, go watch league. Do you think that sort of mentality endangers the um, sort of casual viewer of sort of turning away and and actually actually ends up alienating them away from from the sport? If you want my honest opinion on those sorts of comments from Eddie Jones, I think it's a pretty poor attitude to have. If you want my honest opinion, you know, I've been an England fan for twenty twenty three years, probably something around that, and you know, I've, I haven't missed a game willingly in that time so I think to then turn around and and say to people like me and people like my dad who's watched rugby probably longer than Eddie Jones has because he's older than Eddie Jones to turn around to people like that and say if you want to see a more attacking game go and watch rugby league I find a really really poor attitude yeah it's interesting as well because I think if we go back to sort of the innovative playmaker at 12 I think Eddie was actually ironically trying to replicate rugby league at that point where you know they had the two standoffs um, and they had sort of both kicking options from, um, from from a union perspective. And I think, you know, the All Blacks did it, but they did it with at fullback. And typically fullbacks and fly halves have been more interchangeable than a 10-12. And I think actually that mould um, may not have necessarily come from Eddie's playbook because it was inherited from, from Stuart Lancaster, but he's definitely sort of defined and a lot of teams are now starting to build teams in that same mold, Italy being one with Canada in, uh, at 12 because it worked so effectively. And I think in the modern game, you need to have those two kicking options because everyone blitz defences now. Like there's, there's, there's very, very few circumstances where people actually do that drift defence. So everyone's pushing up really aggressively and they're trying to force a knock-on or force a mistake and having those two options to kick comes massively effective and I think when we looked at Scotland they had two centres who were willing to run like you said but the kicking threat came from Stuart Hogg and I think he's probably the best in the world at that spiral kick that he does he has perfected that he executes it perfectly and if we look at I think I think he kicked it from their 22 uh, maybe maybe just just outside of there, 22. And he kicks it and, and he gets it to um, probably about six or seven yards away from England's try line. Um, he had no time to react. He literally dropped it and, and, and it's instinct. And I think that's sort of the way it's progressing. Um, I think you need a fantastically well-rounded, massive boot fullback. Okay, so here's an interesting question for you then I'd like to put to you. If England are going to employ this this kick tactic where they, they lump the ball in the air, where was England's kick chase last week? Because for me, it was nowhere to be seen. Well, not to reiterate old cliches, but, you know, the kick's only as good as its kick chase. And, yeah, it was definitely, certainly not as effective as it normally is. And is that down to selection? Is that down to fitness of players? I think Eddie took sole, not sole sort of responsibility last week and said, it's, it's my fault I didn't prepare the players well enough. Is he protecting the players? Do you think the players need to take more responsibility from yourself? That's a really fair question. And I'm going to probably use some pretty strong language here to, to discuss what the way I felt the England players contributed to the to their downfall last week. I thought they were weak. I thought they were spineless. Um, I thought they lacked leadership. They didn't look bothered. They looked way too comfortable. You know, these players, that because they look so comfortable that they're not going to get dropped, that they don't feel like that they've got anything to play for because they know full well next week, it's all right, Eddie's going to pick me anyway. And do you think that's a reflection of the players because of how well Scotland played or do you think they were just genuinely that poor? I think it's a bit of both. Like, you know, we spoke at the start of this chat about this game that we didn't want to take anything away from Scotland. And I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to take anything away from Scotland. But can you tell me the last time England had, and the stats obviously vary, but I've seen stats as low as 35% possession at home. Yeah, obviously it's hard to attack if, if you don't have the ball. It's interesting, that stat. From my point of view, it looked like England were just boxed in, or certainly the way I, I remembered it before I looked back on it back on it on, on Wednesday when I watched it again. It looked like England were backed into their 22 and Scotland were defending. So I thought the percentage of possession 
was far higher for England, but actually the territory possession for Scotland was far, far higher, but also that the possession was far higher. And that tells me that actually England's defence isn't the issue here because, as you said, if they were more ruthless and potentially elevated risk to, to base out that risk and reward, they could have got a few more tries and there was definitely sort of opportunity to do so. Do you know what? I think there's one stat that I've read from last week that is one that really stood out for me. In that game, Scotland had 11 clean line breaks to England's zero. Yeah, you can't win games like that, unfortunately. You know, and I think actually there was a point at the start of the second half, the one time that England did move the ball, they went about 30 yards up up the pitch, you know, they moved the ball, I think it was off the the back of a scrum and, and Slade made a sort of half break. And I think it was about 46, 47 minutes into the game. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, he's obviously put a rocket at them at half time. You know, they still look a bit more up for this. They don't look as lethargic as they did in the first half. But then they just reverted to type. You know, they had two or three rooks and it was, ah, do you know what? A bit bored, let's lump it in the air. And that's what it feels like as a fan. And, I, and I'm sure it's not that. But this is the impression that they're giving across to fans, I think. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff on social media. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about social media in a bit. Because I think it's it's good and bad, obviously. But there's a lot of England fans who are not happy with the way England are playing at the moment. And do you think it's partly Owen Farrell's fault because the execution wasn't good enough? Or do you think it's partly Eddie's fault because he's the one orchestrating the players? Obviously not to single out a particular player, but Owen Farrell played fly half. And I think it was the first time he started to fly half for a while. And in my opinion, as a somewhat more of a neutral, he doesn't look at all the player that Ford does when he's starting in that position. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because I think George Ford, I think, during Eddie's first four years, definitely had a downturn in form. I think he'd been good for England previously. And I think he started to find form again, building up to the World Cup. And I actually thought he had a very good World Cup. But in that sort of 2016 to 2018, I was amongst a lot of England fans saying, do you know what, let's move Farrell back to 10. Let's move Farrell back to 10. George Ford's not playing well enough. Let's move Farrell back in the 10 and we'll go Farrell, Tuolangi and Slade. But I honestly think, and this might sound controversial and I might get a lot of comments from England fans that I don't know what I'm talking about, which is fine, but this is just my opinion. I would like to see now, I'd like to see Farrell drops, mate. I don't think he's playing well enough. I'd like to see Ford, I'd like to see Lawrence and I'd like to see Slade. That, that's what I'd like to see with, with who's available. Obviously, if Tuolangi was fit, I'd like to see Tuolangi back in there, but he's not. So we have to, we have to work with what we've got. Um, but I, I think that Owen Farrell, needs something to change his mentality or change the way he's playing, just something to sort of give him a bit of oomph about him because he just looks so lethargic at the moment. I mean, he kicks his goals, which is fine. We sort of get that. But beyond that, what what do you think he's offering to the team? Personally, I think it's, it's a dangerous topic when the media... And, you know, we'll go on to obviously the dangers of social, social media because I feel fairly strong on that probably later on, if that's all right. But... I think when the general population and, you know, the media's obviously got a, a strong say in sort of the directive of, of people's opinions and they influence it, you know, in, in, in quite a substantial manner. When they start questioning the captain of England, then the players will start questioning the captain. And I think right now he's one of the most experienced players. He's the leader. And I think England, without a leader lose sort of all identity and maybe that's partly on on eddie you see that he's constantly the voice and then they'll have sort of the odd scene where itoja is coaching some of the sort of newer forwards but he is the voice and everyone stops what they're doing and they're all around them uh they they, they, they go all around them because he's captain so without that it's essentially like having a player coach, in my opinion, uh, because everyone wants to impress the boss, don't they? And he's he's part of that. So I agree. I'll, I'll go on the record and I agree. I think something needs to happen with um, Owen. It could be that, you know, he, he gets dropped. I think that's sort of maybe more on the drastic end. I think potentially he needs to come on fresh and build some confidence and some fitness because he just, he just went up to par last week. Motivation, that was the word I was looking for a couple of minutes ago and I just wouldn't come to my mind. Motivation, you need something to motivate him to want to get out there and to want to wear that shirt and to want to play well. I just, 
yeah, I, I appreciate everything you're saying about him, you know, behind the scenes, and that obviously has to play into it. But I do think that we're coming to a point where something, like we say, has to change. And we have singled out Owen Farrell here. And it probably is a little bit unfair just to single out one player because, you know, to be honest, I think there's probably seven or eight guys in that team that could have been dropped last week um, from, from, from that game. They were that poor. So it probably is a bit unfair to um, single out Owen Farrell in the way that we have done. So I think let's just, let's move on from that. You know, we've, we've gone quite long there talking about England. Um, and it, obviously this isn't the, an England podcast. This is meant to be a rugby podcast. So let's, let's, let's move on. And what I do want to ask though, just on the game, um, not specifically about England, do you think the referee had an impact on the game? Honestly, I, I don't. I think there's probably areas where both sides could probably put their hands up and, and, and say, you know, you miss this or miss, but that's, that's just rugby in general. Um, personally, I, I think it was refereed quite well. I'm trying to think back at any sort of particular standout moments, which uh, I'm, okay. But there's, there's one, there's one, one mistake that I can say right at the end of the game when uh, Hamish Watson, literally the last uh, phase of play got the turnover and kicked the ball out. He didn't release there. So if we're talking about individual, but but that's just that's just one moment in a game, and there's loads that you know the Scottish could put their hands up and say, well, you know, come on, like there's there's this, this, and this. That's the only one that really springs to mind because Hamish Watson kicked the ball. Probably if if he didn't kick the ball, I probably wouldn't have looked at um, how he turned it over. But in terms of general influence on the game, I don't think it, it was that impactful in my opinion. So I don't to a point, but what I think the effect of so he gave away or he gave 10 penalties against England in the first sort of 22 23 minutes and I think for me that pretty much ended the breakdown as a contest because England knew that if they did anything on the floor it was going to be given a penalty um so I think that it ended the, that contest at the uh, on the floor completely and Scotland were allowed to totally dominate the breakdown do you think that has an element of Stuart Hogg saying, um, listen, we've noticed this in, you know, analysis. So the ref was more conscientious of, you know, the, the effort on, you know, that at the breakdown from England, do you think he was maybe went into it with, you know, that, that sort of preconception? Possibly. And we've heard coaches and players do this before. We remember Eddie last year talking about Wynne Jones, the prop for Wales, about how he couldn't scrummage. And I think there was talk about Andrew Porter as well, wasn't there? That he there couldn't was, scrummage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there was. So coaches and players do it all the time. Referees have got to be professional enough to not think about that and, and, and dispel it from their mind and referee what they see in front of them. I think where I am a little bit more on the side of that it could have had an influence. I'm not saying it did because I think Scotland were better and you know I'm not going to go back over that again. But I think that when you have a game in which one team has nine penalties more than the other, I mean, that, that says a lot, you know, and, and there's a, there was a lot of talk on, again, online about how Andrew Brace's arm only seems to go one way. Because if you look at any game of rugby, you could probably give away a penalty at every single breakdown. There's something going on. And I always remember being taught as a kid that normally what referees would, would try and do is, is, is pick out the most egregious offences. And I think that's what they do. But to almost try and, and, and have the penalties reasonably even towards the end of the game, sort of within two or three to make it fair because like I say you could give away a penalty at every breakdown so to have a disparity where you've given away nine more penalties you know it's not I don't want to use the word bias but it, it does feel like like I said a couple of minutes ago that his quickness with the with the whistle and, and referees referee the breakdown differently I think that's also part of the problem you know some some referees let away let players get away with more on the on the ground than others but I think that his his quickness to blow the whistle, particularly against England, and, and I think, well, as we've illustrated with the, the 15 penalties to six, it ended the contest on the floor. And that is one thing, if you remember last week, the one big thing we picked out about this England-Scotland game was going to be that battle at the breakdown. And I think that while Scotland dominated it and, and Hamish Watson, who we've picked out, was just incredible. Uh, probably man of the match for me. I, I, I can't remember who won man of the match in the end, but he probably was my man of the match. I thought he was absolutely outstanding. Um, but it, it ended. It, the referee essentially ended the breakdown as a contest after 20 minutes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd one, right? Because we're talking about those possession stats and I wasn't aware that it was as, as high as 15, but that does make sense because it's really difficult to 
end up with only look what you said between 30 and 35 percent possession it's really really difficult to end up with that because inevitably the team is going to kick the ball back to you so you know it's it's going to be that's that's the game nowadays so for, for that to happen it's purely down to England's ill discipline then because obviously they were going to be kicking for territory kicking possession they were up so they were going to take their time um, at set piece and that's something that I personally would like to see less in the game I think it's it happens so often but if we look at sort of an analysis of 20 to 30 test level games, it's typically the team that scores first that wins. And I, I could say that with a fair level of confidence because the team chasing has to do a lot more to, to get points on the board. It's quite easy just to shut someone out, kick the ball every time they get into your 22 and just constantly run the D. And I think actually that's what England have tried to do in recent times they've they've scored early even if you look back at that New Zealand win I think was it Manu Tuolangi scored after two minutes and then England just locked them out and 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 you know it's that game plan works but it only works for England if England score first we've seen what happens to England if they don't score first England are a team that need to score first put the pressure on the opposing team and then lock them out until they make a mistake kick for points build pressure, score a try, and and it repeats because they're so good defensively. And I think actually we're going to see that of France in, in sort of years, to, well, the year to come or the two years to come before the World Cup because that's a proven way of winning tournament rugby. That, that works. What I just can't get my head around is, and I see what, and I appreciate what you say about, you know, the team that scores first, tends to win games and, and I think you're absolutely right I think that was a really good analysis actually on, on particularly England the way they've played over the last few years but what I just can't get my head around is after 20 minutes England had had 10 penalties given against them to Scotland's two now are we honestly saying that Scotland had in that time that England had conceded 10 that Scotland had only conceded two I, I just don't believe that and, and it's about consistency you know you look later in the game, and I'm fairly certain it was Ellis Genge was had a penalty given against him for a, a no arm tackle. Oh, it was a it was an attempted wrap, but he'd gone a bit too low and he'd misjudged it. And there was a penalty given, and then literally within five minutes, exactly the same thing happened, bang in front of the sticks for England, and there was no penalty given. So where's the consistency? Yeah, and I think these are points that always get highlighted, and you know it's up to the refereeing union to, to to have a look at these post-match analysis. Obviously, both teams will have analysts that you know are hired to to sort of see what the referee has done wrong, and then present them in a manner where you know if the case is solid, they'll present it to um, the refereeing union and they'll make the decision. But I think you know if if we're talking about the referee and how we influence the game that could have been fairly early on um it's, it's how you adapt to that and England didn't adapt they didn't have that plan b um and they were still just trying to flog this horse which you know is clearly clearly dead or it was certainly dead last week you know I, I'm probably going to say this and they're going to pump Italy tomorrow but confidently I can say We've, we've seen another situation where England have found themselves in a position where they feel uncomfortable and they haven't been many times, certainly not in the past few years, and they, they couldn't adapt. So it's going back to the point, where is this plan B? And, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to the point you raised earlier. If you were to drop Farrell, who would you pick in, in his sort of position? Because I know there's a few players that you're a massive fan on, but purely on the point that I've made as a plan B, someone who's able to like play front up rugby, who would be your choice? To play fly off for England? Fly off, or if we're talking sort of a, a playmaker to, uh, playmaker 12, for example. So I think I said this about 10 minutes ago, but I would I would go Ford, Lawrence and Slade for tomorrow. That would have been my choice. Um, uh, what? I'd, go on, sorry. Uh, sorry, I, I meant if you were to drop him from the team full stop, so you know, taken oh, down to the shadow, shadow squad. Oh, yeah, yeah. And who would I bring on? Oh, I'd bring Joe Simmons in, 100%. I, ca- I can't believe that he's not even been talked about uh, from, from Eddie at all. Like, I find it mystifying. Um, You know, yeah, I don't get it. Um, Before we move on, because obviously we've got, we've still got another game to, to talk about um from, from last weekend, and we've gone quite long on this. Um, What I just want to ask you is, what do you think Scotland's chances are of 
winning the tournament. Quite high. I mean, it's going to be an arm wrestle with with uh, France. That being said, if there is a team that can unlock them from a kicking perspective, I, I personally think um, Scotland have a better kicking game than France. And that's going to be really interesting to see sort of how they implement that because defensively, you know, we've spoken about the Sean Edwards defence, and um, but Scotland were brilliant. Eighty-nine percent completion rate, I, I believe you said before before we started recording against England. That is a solid stat. You know, anything over ten percent normally is an issue, but against England, having an eleven percent sort of completion deficit is is a sensational stat. And I think against France, they can replicate that sort of level of competence in D. It's going to be a really, really interesting game, and certainly if they're they're able to sort of, you know, drift the defense left and right with, with that long kicking game that they have. So we'll talk about obviously France versus Scotland in more detail in a couple of weeks' time when we come to talk about that game in particular. But I have a sneaking suspicion that France will be incredibly motivated to put right the mistake they made last year with the Awas punch and being sent off at Murrayfield because let's be honest they bottled that game big style France were the best team last year and they, they look to be the best team this year so I think they will be incredibly motivated having said that I think this is Scotland's best chance to win a championship in 20 years they, they, I think the last one they won is 1999 the last five nations so I think that, you know it's as good a time as any for them to do it and Credit to Gregor Townsend, because if you look at that team, remember they went out in the pool stages pretty feeling pretty embarrassed, um, having been beaten by Japan. And to have turned it around in the way that they have done in 18 months, I think Gregor Townsend deserves huge credit. He had the balls to drop Finn Russell. Um, and I think that that relationship looks to have mended. And, and I think, you know, hats off to Gregor Townsend. Yeah, and I, th- I think there's a tweet from me, um, sorry, a tweet, uh, certainly a Facebook post from me, probably about 10 years ago, and sort of tongue-in-cheek, I said, if Scotland were able to complete an attacking phase in the opponent's sort of 22, they'd be the best team in the world. And I meant that. And I think now it's taken 10 years, but now we're starting to see that. There's, we're starting to see sort of that confidence. Um, maybe not sort of to the levels of... Um, you know, New Zealand and co where, like you said, they have that killer instinct, but they're getting there. And what I see is Italy uh, from from an Italian perspective, just to touch on it real quick, they're in a similar sort of boat to where Scotland were 10 years ago. Like they play brilliantly until they see sort of that white line. And then, you know, maybe a bit of an experience, maybe um, that white line fever that coming up to the try line, um, something silly happens, but, Scotland are in this position now where they're comfortable playing in the opponent's 22, just as comfortable as they are defending their own. And that's what makes them such an attractive prospect um, for even, even for, you know, the upcoming world cup. And I think they have really built to this world cup coming as well. Um, yeah. Really, really happy to see them do well. Um, they're a team that, you know, I, I, I love watching. And I think in terms of that attacking flair from the back, that we talk about. They're one of the only Northern Hemisphere teams that really sort of let loose and have the confidence in their backs to to try something, you know, extraordinary or out of the ordinary or, you know, risky um, as, as far as sort of Northern Hemisphere rugby goes. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting actually because they, they seem to be building that strength in depth now, Scotland. They've got Adam Hastings, who's not even playing, um, and he played very, very well much of last year. They've got this Van der Vault, is it? Um, who yep. who played a couple of games, I think, in the Autumn Nations Cup, who looks a, a very um, capable player. So they're, they're developing a bit of depth as well. And I know I've just touched on, on fly-off there, but they've got a couple of good centres. Hugh Jones was back on the bench last week. There's Sam Johnson, who's been injured. So it, it's exciting times for Scotland. And, and actually, probably, like I say, the first time in 20 years, it, it is exciting to be a Scottish rugby fan. And, I th- you know, it's great for them, you know, from a you know, a, a sort of a sporting perspective. Obviously, I always sort of would say tongue-in-cheek that I'm not a particular fan of the Scots, but, you know, from a sort of more broad sort of sports talking point, it's good to have another a, a competitive Scotland team back in rugby. You know, they've had some good, strong teams over the years, so that's really nice to see. For sure. And I think, you know, touching on what we said last week, there was a few sort of players who 
really shone. Obviously, you spoke at depth about the back row and, um, you know, how much of a fan I am of Hamish Watson. So, you know, we'll, we'll just put that there. But Van der Merwe came in, played exceptionally well, actually scored, I think, the only try of the, ga- um, the game as well. Um, but outside of that, you know, if we're talking about the, the front three um, for Scotland, how good were they at set piece or, or how poor were England at set piece and how much was forced on them? So, yeah, really exciting things to come from that side. And the final game last weekend, obviously, saw Wales taking on Ireland in Cardiff. Uh, and just before we get into the talking about the game, Mike, what I wanted to to mention, um, we have a platform now to, to talk about things that we find totally unacceptable. And, you know, we've grown up in rugby households. We've played the game. We're, we're big fans of the game. And, you know, there is a level of fun and banter that is expected within the game. And we've all been on the receiving end of it and we've all dished it out. And, and I would not want to take away from that at all. But what I find totally unacceptable and cretinous is anybody sending death threats to somebody like Billy Burns because he missed a kick. That is absolutely disgusting. So if you are one of those people out there doing that, get out of our game. And I, fir- I firmly believe that. And in the words of the Amal, this is not soccer. We do not expect those that sort of behaviour and those standards in this game. Yeah, and uh, this this sort of touches on the point that I wanted to raise earlier um, about sort of the demon demonising effect of the uh, social media. And I think it's it's interesting because you know he's not the only person subject to it this week. Obviously, that was that had the, the limelight on it, and you know. It's arguably Ireland were in the ascendancy um, at that point, and being in the ascendancy, it's it has sort of those added pressures, and you know it happens probably to every fly half. You know they'll they'll throw one out in the fall like that, and there's nothing you can do about it. But from a club level, uh, I find it quite sad to hear that Umaga had to deactivate his Instagram account. He's 23 years old. It's someone that young subject to that sort of abuse and you know level of abuse from the trolls that's that's quite sad because you know I said last week it's quite easy for these young players who are getting exposed to senior test or international rugby at like that level to to put their heads down and sort of peter away and I think there's a responsibility on the fans to build these players as as you know much as there is to sort of kick him up the arse by saying right listen that that wasn't good enough obviously in the grand scheme of things players don't need to be told that they've played poor they don't need to be told from direct messages certainly that they've had a bad game because they'll know it themselves and I think there's there's an area where we sort of brush over because there's that generational sort of uh, transition where you know the younger generation of rugby fan um it's probably slightly more competent with, with the whole social media aspect. You know, that, that 18 to 35 year old bracket, pretty sure everyone knows how to send out a tweet and everyone knows how to respond to someone, or, you know, directly on, on, on Facebook and Instagram. Does anybody think out there that uh, Billy Burns was sat in the changing rooms afterwards laughing his socks off, giving it ha 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 lol. You know, I kicked, you know, the, I deliberately kicked out because I was born in England. It's absolute nonsense. Anybody that thinks that is just absolutely barking up the wrong tree. You know, I bet he was absolutely dejected after that. He'll know he's made that mistake and he'll want to prove something this weekend. And do you know what, mate? I really hope he goes out there and has a really good game this weekend. And he, do you know what? He sticks two fingers up to all those idiots who took the time to troll him on social media. Yeah, he definitely has a point to prove. And I think it'd be interesting to see sort of if he's galvanized or, you know, if he's got his head down, loses confidence because these same people who were trolling him by assumption are going to be Island fans and they're going to be the ones that suffer from this because I think there's probably just as, you know, higher likelihood that it has the opposite effect. It won't have a galvanizing effect. It'll have a demoralizing effect. A low confidence fly half is not someone you want pulling the strings. So yeah, it'd be really interesting to see sort of how that works. But like I said, I think from a social media perspective, like let's just try and be more cognizant of the fact that they are human and they are subject to the same emotions. And just because they play on a professional platform and get paid for it doesn't give us the right to to treat them any differently. And yeah, just 
uh, that's one thing that I, I agree. I, I I hate seeing, and I hate seeing, you know, even outside of rugby. I think there's there's a problem, um, just in general with, with 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 social media and the way it's policed. But just something for people to be sort of aware of and and try and make a conscientious effort not to not to post this stuff. Yeah, mate, I totally agree with you there, and I, I thank you for your comments on that. So moving on to actually talk about the game, there was probably a couple of uh, you know big talking points that came from it and probably influenced the way the game went in the end. Red card, yes or no, for Peter Amani? It's funny you mentioned that, actually, because when we were watching it, I, I, I put in our uh, WhatsApp group, oh, it's so refreshing to hear Wayne Barnes say, that's totally unavoidable. But I had the same view, or the same angle, I should say, as Wayne Barnes um, in the replays it was that it, there's no argument it was a red right he didn't need to lead with his shoulder there was I, I don't understand where the argument that that is not a red card comes from you know I, I wonder if you have the same view completely to me and, and they need to look at this actually but people piling into rooks like that from distance and at speed is far more dangerous than someone getting a slap around the face for me, and you see far more yellow and red cards given for the slap around the face than you do for players charging in. And I mean, not only that what we saw from Peter Omani, I'm talking about when, and there are instances of this where, you know, the rook has formed, it's, it's been worn and the ball's at the back and suddenly some player just comes charging in from 10 metres away, 20 stone, and all these players have relaxed. That to me is far more dangerous than, than like I say, the slap around the face. You know, I feel sorry for Peter Omani because, you know, Intent-wise, do I think for a second that Pierre Armani dived in with his shoulder deliberately to take out Thomas Francis like that? No, I, I don't. But I think it was reckless. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I'm I'm going to disagree with you there. I think Pierre Armani has been known to do stuff uh, to incite maybe you know some aggression in the past. Um, so whether he did that intentionally, to I don't, I don't think he did it intentionally to harm Thomas Francis. I do think he did it intentionally. To, to put you know put it on Thomas Francis and let him know that he's there and maybe trying to incite some sort of reaction because actually he's one of those players where I quite frankly find him a niggly player he likes getting under players skins he likes a reaction and it's it's not always sheer aggression it's sometimes it's just to try and get a reaction um so you know you you're, you're being fair and giving him the benefit of the doubt I'm sort of going on my previous well, his previous experiences that I've seen. Yeah, I don't think we're necessarily disagreeing. I think we've got a slightly different viewpoint on it, but I don't think it's necessary. I don't think we're, we're a million miles apart. I just think that possibly, you know, I don't think that there was any intent to hurt. And I think you've said that as well. I think where you, where we are slightly different is that you feel that Peter Omani is, a, like you say, a niggly player. And I think he is, but I, I don't think it's anything more than than quite a lot of, of other players that have that, that you get players that are like that and, and I don't think that it's anything anything malicious. I just think he sort of plays on the plays on the line or on the edge. You know, you you, you talk about that, you know, you've got players that will play on that edge. And I think he's just one of them. Yeah, it's interesting actually. How much of that do you think again was a directed from um Wales uh, and Wayne Pivak saying, right, we've noticed this and given sort of th- that video analysis to to the ref and said th- this is times where he's played outside the realms of the laws and um that maybe influenced the decision more. That that for me is a really interesting concept because it comes back to the 2019 World Cup final, uh, whereby um, Razi Erasmus said it's more important to prepare for which ref that your fate that, that that that's going to be refing the game than the team because obviously you can focus on yourself but the ref each ref has a particular sort of area of strength and weakness and um, there's different ways that you can potentially manipulate the way that they ref the game and it goes back to your point against England you know if there was a position where maybe Gregor Townsend and uh, Stuart Hogg were like, you need to cut this out. You know, how much of an influence did it have on that game? And that that Peter Omani red card could be a very similar situation where a, a player's done this, you know, numerous times in the past, maybe not to the extent he did it last weekend, but has done it numerous times in the past. You need to be aware of this. And then that weighs and you know, Wayne Barnes, when he's going, is there a, you know, clear intent? How dangerous was that? You know, it, it's, it's difficult to try and sort of get those images after you've seen them out of your head. So I think the key phrase you used there was to what, to the extent 
that this challenge was. And I think it was clear and obvious to anyone, except for maybe a few Irish fans who bizarrely seemed to be defending it and saying it wasn't a red card. I can't for the life of me wear that one out. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that uh, it was a it was a clear red card. You heard the language that, that Wayne Barnes used. He was very clear about it. And I thought, you know, there's, there was a lot of chat from Irish fans after the game that Wayne Barnes had a poor game. I don't think he did. I thought Wayne Barnes refereed the game pretty, pretty damn well, to be honest. I think he's one of the better referees out there. Um, and I think that he refereed the game well. Yeah, no, I was, I was literally about to ask you what your thoughts, because I, I think I'm of the opinion that he is probably the best ref in the world. Now, he's a lawyer, so he's very pragmatic about the way he approaches particular decisions. And I think that's something that sometimes doesn't resonate because, you know, every rugby fan, depending on which side of the decision they are, will always state that there's a grey area. But their laws and laws coming from a lawyer, I think I quite like the fact that it's you know clear this is this is sort of the thought process. And he's got he's got he's got a forensic approach to it, doesn't he? He really does, yeah. And and like I said, I know it, that doesn't that that doesn't resonate with some of the viewers, particularly maybe some of the um, the older, more traditionalist rugby viewers. But I really like that because the laws have changed. The only way. England and you know beyond England I say England because he obviously does a lot of his refereeing in the premiership are, are going to sort of compete at that international level without sort of making those mistakes is for someone to be quite hard about it and that goes for every uh, team in, in the Six Nations if we're looking at someone who's particularly not let's, I'm going to use the word anal but I, I don't mean that in a negative way but anal about the laws um, that's only going to benefit when it comes to a point that has some conjecture in, in, in the World Cup, for example. So, uh, big fan, massive fan. And I love the the YouTube videos he does explaining the laws. I, I think they're brilliant. So, I think a lot of Irish fans were cross with the what perceived inconsistency. So, obviously, Armani gets sent off for that challenge. And then Johnny Williams is, is, isn't sent off. Although, I think Johnny Williams failed a HA off the back of the challenge that he made. And Ringrose, but they both left the pitch. I don't think that the Johnny Williams one can be compared to Peter Armani for me personally, because I think if you watch it, the I'm not entirely sure what Johnny Williams is supposed to do, supposed to do there. There's a there's a clear attempt to wrap. It looks like a shoulder to chest, and to me, it looks almost like a whiplash effect. Then they clash heads, and and to me, you can't give a red card for that. You know, I know that people that we we speak to and and, and probably know the laws slightly better than we do have said that intent doesn't come into it but in a situation like that surely intent has to play a factor in it there is no way that Johnny Williams he didn't lead with his head he didn't lead with his shoulder it was just a very unfortunate and I think the commentators described it on the den I think Jamie Heaslip actually was very good at this he described it as just a rugby incident yeah and I'm, I'm of the same opinion that that was a rugby incident um, it, I, I can see the frustrations from uh, the Irish fans and I can appreciate the frustrations of the Irish, Irish fans. And I think, um, you know, you'd probably be in a similar boat if it was against England. I know what I would be if it was against Italy, but looking at it from a subjective, um, looking at it subjectively, you're always going to come to outcome. Having a look at the whole situation objectively, yeah, that was a rugby incident. And unfortunately, it probably did have some impact um, on the game. But oddly enough, last uh, last Sunday, the game seemed to have got sort of really well for me anyway. The game was at its best the latter end of the the uh, the match. So the last sort of fifteen minutes, Ireland were playing some really really attractive rugby, and I said this to you off air, and I'll, I'll say it now for the listeners: Wales were incredibly lucky that for eighty six percent of the time. They were playing against 14 men because actually they almost lost the game with 14 against 14 men. Ireland were good. Like I, I for me, Ireland looked good. I know obviously um, this is where sort of maybe our opinions differ a little bit, but for me, Ireland were a really um, dangerous side. That you know the questions of where they're going to attack from have sort of been quelled in my opinion. Do you know, what? I'm probably going to annoy Irish and Welsh fans here, but I don't really care. But for me, I know you saying you felt Ireland played well, but I felt it was two poor teams with one playing slightly better than another at certain points in the game. Um, so that that's my feeling on it. I think that 
Wales just needed a win. They needed to win that game somehow, and, and they did. I thought their back row functioned reasonably well. Uh, one player I would like to call out for Ireland, I thought Tyburn was outstanding. I thought he was absolutely brilliant, played really well. Uh, George North, obviously, we are not fans of him at 13. I don't know if we mentioned that last week, but we, you know we, <laughs> we haven't been fans of him at 13, but he had a good game. And um, the, the name that we, we picked out that we thought might be a star scored the, essentially the winning try. Yeah, I, I, he he is such an exciting player, and I didn't, I honestly, I didn't know he had that sort of finish in his locker. But fair play to him if he can do that on the international stage. Let's see sort of where he can go. I, I think he's twenty, twenty-one years old. Um, so much growth in that player, and as long as he keeps fit, you know, it looked like he, he sustained a little bit of an injury off the back of. Um, last week and I don't know sort of how serious that was but as long as he can keep fit for, for the remainder of um, the next few years I think he's he's a player that Wales so happy to, to to have one one player that I'd like to pick out for Ireland and I'll pick out one particular instance on in Ireland because I, I put it on the WhatsApp group because I think I was watching it and I was a couple seconds ahead but I said I'd like to report a murder on Faletau uh, because of that carry that CJ Stander lined him up. That, that I think, is probably one of the biggest impacts Faletau had ever felt. His ancestors felt that. Um, that was one of those where, you know, time stopped. <laughs> um, to, to come back to you on that one, though, what I would like to say is Faletau was up and he made the next tackle. Oh, so I tell you what, people. it shows how hard he is because I tell you what, you're right. You know, CJ Stander pretty much ran over him. But Faletau, I mean, he's one of my favourite players of all time. I think he's absolutely incredible to watch. And he, he is, yeah. he, he just, he's like the ageless man. He never seems to get any older and he just seems to keep playing at this consistently high level. And he was just, I thought he played really well for, from a Wales perspective. Yeah, I completely agree. He's one of those players who um, does something and you're like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And then you're sort of not surprised that he can do something like that. Uh, but yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, they're competing for the same position come Lions Tour, and I think they both have uh, a very um, good opportunity to get picked as well. So that for me, that was just, uh, uh, I'm still here, mate, type moment. And um, yeah, love that, love that. Hope, hopefully we see more of stuff like that in, in the next few games to come. You know, that's a really good point, actually, because I've not really thought about that, because CJ Stander's name's probably gone out of the talk of, of Lions in the last 18 months, because I think, you know, Billy Vanapolo had been playing really well, obviously for England and, you know, Falatau now fit again and, and, and Matt Ferguson's obviously playing really well for Scotland. So I think CJ Sanders' name had sort of been, been lost a little bit. And, and I thought, you know, he, he had a reasonable game, you know, he, he did, he obviously made that really good carry. I thought, you know, Ireland were, were okay. They, they, they obviously struggled with, with 14 men. So we'll see how they, how they progress throughout this competition. Right. Well, I think we're at the end of week two, mate. Uh, I've enjoyed myself. Um, I don't know about you. Yeah, yeah, for sure, mate. This is uh, it's been, been good fun this week. Yeah. So, just any final thoughts? Um, no. Again, you know, I said it last week. Let's hope that there's no contentious issues that we'll be talking about this week. Obviously, there was this week. Um, let's just look for a decent game. You know, uh, of rugby this weekend that we, we can all just sort of discuss next week. So just a reminder for next week, we're obviously going to be doing a review of this weekend's games and we've got the panel show that we talked about, talking about the potential ring fencing of the Premiership. So we're really looking forward to that. So that'll be hopefully released next Saturday for the panel show. Um, well, that's it then. Week two in the books. Um, I've been your host, Josh Matthews, joined by Mike Pachetta, and that was Rugby. Thank you very much. <laughs>